But then at the same time, and I think this is the, the often overlooked component, I think it has to do way more also with soft skills and with especially personal competences and on the second basis also social competences. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hi folks, Dries here. Welcome to the newest episode of the Most Awesome Founder podcast. Today, we do something slightly different. Whereas we normally discuss with founders about their entrepreneurial success stories, we focus this time on an epic failure story. In this episode, I talk with Killian Karash. In 2016, during his undergraduate studies, Killian co-founded Conmi, a social travel platform. However, in 2019, after three years of hard work and self-funding, he and his co-founders decided to terminate the startup. In this episode, you will hear the painful story of why Conmi did not succeed. It's a story about how unexpected events forced the founders to change course and how lack of success challenged the friendship that went back to kindergarten times. I hope you will enjoy the show. Coming to you from WHU. On the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany, this is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Gillian, welcome and great to have you here today on the most awesome founder podcast. And as announced, today we will apply a slightly different approach. So we will actually focus on a failure story instead of a success story. So first of all, thank you for being willing to share some information on one of your failure stories. Now, before we dive into the failure story, um, it would actually be great if you can do some personal storytelling. So on your own personal backgrounds, uh, can you share a bit where you're coming from? What kind of person we have today on the podcast? Definitely. Uh, first of all, Dries, thanks for having me. Uh, it's, it's great to to be back in at the alma mater, although right now just on screen. Um, I, I grew up in, in, in Germany uh, till the age of 16. Uh, that was the first time when I moved to southern France uh, because my part of my family are from southern France. And so I spent a school year abroad there. And that was really the first time that I hugely fell in love with like a very cultured and culturally rich environment because there, I went to an international school there, had exposure to a lot of different people. And that kind of forged the transition and the trajectory that I ultimately also embarked on um, and that we also will touch upon later as part, as part of the, the, the failure story that you alluded to. But so after that, I came back, did my uh, bachelor's at, uh, or did a dual study program actually for my bachelor's. And during that time, um, really had this, let's say, was fortunate to be able to travel quite a bit, uh, met a lot of people internationally. So uh, I had two semesters abroad as part of the program, 
had a work stay abroad, so really was able to to yeah to go into different cultures. And during that time, also just like on weekends and so on, travel a lot with my friends. Mm-hmm. And that was precisely that moment in time when I went to Korea uh, for my semester abroad, where I started realizing um, the difference it made to have a to have someone you know there whether it's a friend whether it's a friend of a friend in that particular country because that person can just and like show you a country way differently just to give an example right like uh after the third day i was basically invited to a family gathering in korea uh something where in hindsight people told me wow like i've lived in the country for 10 years and no one had invited me yet and yet i had the chance and the opportunity to experience such things and there are many more of these little um, experiences that ultimately made traveling so much different. And so when I came back, and that was actually funny enough, I was just cooking, standing in the kitchen, like the way sometimes, let's say, epiphanies happen, right? Because in yeah. the back of my mind, I was always like, what, what's the difference between me just flying to a country? And let's say often feeling not fully satisfied with the way I experienced the country. And then for and these kind of uh, experiences that I made back then. And it just hit me that really like the, the connecting factor was ultimately knowing people that are very like-minded. And that laid the foundation what was ultimately to become Conmi, which uh, is the business we will talk about later. Yeah. Uh, which we then bootstrapped throughout the bachelors after the bachelors uh, where I also became part of a business transformation at Hugo Boss. Uh, did a lot of, let's say, customer-focused transformation there. And then later on, that all prompted me, or the failures prompted me to then, let's say, seek for another path, go to WHU, uh, expand my network, and ultimately, yeah, down the line, led right now also to the funda- uh, funding of my current company. Okay, yeah, and we will also come back to that at the end. But so, as you already indicated, I want to talk with you a bit about uh, this endeavor you did with Conme, which uh, was a kind of social travel platform, as I understood it, to yes. as it's still announced on LinkedIn even today, a localized <laughs> uh, travel experience, uh, which you founded in August 2016. Yes. So can you explain a bit more about exactly what kind of pain points you wanted to solve with this mm-hmm. travel app that you created? Yes, definitely. So... We started from our personal experience, right? And so we said, hey, there must be an easier way to find people that our friends know abroad. Uh, Because what we would do is we would spend partially hours um, on Facebook, for instance, going through friend lists and checking, okay, my close friend X knows these people. Mm -hmm. And that person happens to be in Hong Kong or in Denmark or wherever it is. And that was ultimately the experience was worth it. But the process to get there was a huge pain. So um, at least to the people like in my my surroundings that traveled in the same way. And so we said, hey, there should be an easier way. Because like if if you just know the, the indirect connections through Facebook, we can just scrape it. You can say, hey, I want to go to Denmark or to whatever place or to Tunisia, see if there's anyone in the in your extended circle of influence and then just, let's say, give you the solution. That, mm-hmm. was, that was the basic idea. 
Now, what happened is that three months into testing the idea, so we went out and like tested it, like when spoke to over 200 people, also uh, like age-wise 22 to 25 uh, to also inquire how they traveled, what they like, what they liked, what they disliked. And especially always focusing on this, let's say, social component, becoming part of a new culture, uh, becoming part of, let's say, the, the really local um, communities. And uh, what happened during that time is that suddenly Facebook closed their API. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was related to the, the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> so... Having, let's say, already developed a solution, having had the mock-ups and so on, we then realized, okay, that solution is no longer feasible. So we were basically at the at the point where we had to decide either we abandon this um, yeah. idea or we, let's say, go all in and create our own network, which yeah. we knew is much harder. Um, but we're so convinced of the idea that we ultimately said, hey, even if it only turns out to be, let's say, a small thing and all of our friends use it, we might already still, let's say, at least solve our own pain points. <laughs> yeah. Before we go on, because you were saying before, look, I was uh, cooking my dinner and suddenly I had this epiphany uh, for this idea and I, I wanted to make it happen now. I'm also often cooking and I might also sometimes have nice ideas when I'm cooking, but that does not necessarily mean that I suddenly decide to start a startup. You can have great ideas, but That's true. still then making the decision, I will really go for it and create a startup during my undergraduate studies seems to be a big step. Can you explain a bit why you were so driven to really make this happen, to mm -hmm. not just think about this great idea during cooking, but really start it as a startup? That's a good question. Um, I think what comes to play here is a bit of my background story as well. Uh, I grew up with my father being self-employed and having his own company. And so from the early age on, I really saw him constantly, let's say, working uh, mm. and constantly, let's say, also and having fun in the process. And it was for me not necessarily at that point in time when I had the idea. It wasn't really about, let's say, I have to found a company. It was more about this intrinsic motivation to to really solve that pain point. And whether it would become a startup, whether whether it would just become any type of solution, uh, was to be fair at that particular point in time secondary to me. Okay. Because what really drove me is to first of all solve our, uh, my own pain point and the pain point of our friends. And I just wanted to find a solution for that. And so in a way I got creative of how that could be. And then the process just turned out to be a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. talking to talking to a lot of friends really understanding also how that works because it's, it's been something i have had absolutely no idea about like mm. i literally and i'm kind of ashamed or almost to like say that but i literally type in uh into google how to start a startup <laughs> and then like read through different blogs or how to launch a product right yeah and obviously there's lots of stuff lots of recommendations on google everyone says different things and um, I just basically followed a bit of a thread of things that I found online, like doing mockups. I had no idea what a mockup is and so on and so forth. Yeah. But it was just like, okay, it seems to be that a lot of people recommend that. So let's just do this. Let's just do user testing and these kind of things, yeah. um, which happened to be sometimes a good suggestion, but 
oftentimes i mean they also tell you to do 50 things at the same time which is more distracting than actually let's say beneficial yeah and as i understand it you also had some co-founders were they immediately also involved or did you first start alone and then gradually involve them how did yeah. that go so so i had the idea first on my own um but then I, a kindergarten friend of mine he, i told him about it and he was like this is so cool like mm let's i'm in kind of thing like yeah. without even really being uh or without really having let's say discussed it further we was just like yeah that's so cool i wanted like join i want to like make that happen and which to be fair we can touch upon it also later is also something that's also let's say resulted later on in, in problems okay. like finding the right co-founding partner i think is also a big learning when it comes to do you want to do it together with very close friends or not there's good arguments for and against it yeah mm, but so so we're mostly the two of us first for the first three four months and then i did my semester uh well, then i did a work stint abroad in new york and at the same time my co-founder or then who became my co-founder, the, the good friend of mine. Uh, he did a semester abroad in uh, in Madrid. And he just basically went to on all the parties, said like, hey, yeah, we have this cool idea. And then there happened to be a tech guy, because we needed a CTO, uh, <laughs> who just said, hey, cool, I'm in. Like, I like that idea. <laughs> and so we're like, okay, I guess, I mean, if he's so motivated, let's just do it. And just was like a random party somewhere yeah. in madrid that happened to like get us the, this other person on board which to be fair i mean in hindsight vetting people and so on and so forth i mean there's also lots of things we could have done better and differently but um yeah that's that's how it went yeah so let's say it in a nice way the co-founder team was created quite organically yes <laughs> great. <laughs> great. Okay, and then we, we come back to the story indeed, huh? because you were saying, okay, we were like in for three, four months, suddenly Facebook closed down their API, which actually destroyed our initial idea of leveraging the Facebook network to establish connections, which actually implied that you had to start creating your own network. Right. Um, so how did you do that? Yeah, so essentially what we did at first, was, um, so there were two components to it. The first component was like we said, okay, let's let's leverage our own friendship circle uh, because lots of people travel that way. So we just like the same people that we had asked for their opinion um, on whether or not this is an actual pain point. Um, in brackets, it turns out it was not enough of a pain point for people uh, to ultimately use the solution. But um, these people said, okay, if, if we can develop a solution for them and if all of our, let's say, if all of us invites our closest five friends and these friends do the same, we're rapidly going to have a lot of people on there. And um, yeah, the only thing we obviously didn't factor in is that in such a model, you need to probably start locally and not globally immediately. Because eventually it doesn't help you if you have, I don't know how many tens of or hundreds of thousands of cities in the world and the chances of you finding someone, even if there's 5,000 people on the platform, being in precisely that little village you go to around the world are super slim. Yeah. And then the second problem being obviously that there is, let's say, 
the travel is not something that happens every weekend. Back no. at the time, it did a bit, but not like for people that then graduate that get have jobs and so on and so forth. So let's say the 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 hook factor of the application so that people open it often enough and so on and so forth was really not given. Uh, it's like a thing you open once or twice a year, maybe. And no. so people definitely don't keep that type of application on their phone. But yeah, this is something that we ultimately also had to learn. Uh, but back at the time, we didn't really factor that in. We just focused on, let's ask our friends to invite five people each, and then we'll we'll take it from there. Yeah, and so the, the idea was, I can register on the platform, and then when I travel to somewhere, I can find somebody that can kind of welcome me in that particular city. And at right. the same time, I'm also willing to welcome people in my own city, so I'm I'm both a kind of user of the platform, but also a producer. Yeah. Like and, and with the one, let's say, distinction that because we we saw also quite a few people use, for instance, Couchsurfing to get in touch with local people. But what we yeah. what everyone told us is that a they don't feel secure because especially girls, uh, and b um, they often don't really let's say sync or feel like they're on the same wavelength with these people. And so we said, hey, people surround them. Like if you go to a party, right? And a good friend of yours introduces you to someone else. The chance, like if that person is also a good friend of your friend, chances are that at least to a certain degree, you have similarities. You have, let's say, commonalities that you can then build on. Mm. And that gives you that instant connection that is super helpful in let's say, yeah, building, forging stronger bonds and actually also creating some sort of interest in the other person. And we wanted to leverage that concept to say, hey, the same is going to work for you traveling abroad. And then later, when we realized is, hey, not everyone has like most people around the globe, obviously. So uh, what we added on top is a layer of a sort of personality test Okay. Um, so like this typical MBTI test that yeah. gives you that tells you, hey, you're such and such type of person. Uh, we come, we we replicated the algorithm, but twisted in a way that's like a fun questionnaire for um for travel. So that would indicate your travel preference, whether you're like a, and that would also then let's say give you in a second step. The plan was to give you recommendations on particular uh, activities. Because not everyone might enjoy going to the Colosseum or doing a mountain hike or going to that particular cafe. Uh, so again, we would base we wanted to base all these recommendations to make them way more tailored based on your personality type or travel type, as we called it. Yeah. Okay. So you did a number of iterations based yes. on the learnings that were emerging as you were creating. Exactly. This product, right? uh, now I I also read that in the end uh, you became a kind of bootstrapped company of with six employees yeah. were these people all doing it on the site or were there really people that were fully committed to the, uh, the, the startup? Both. So the, the three co-founders uh, did it, but so we did it alongside our day jobs, which okay. I think is also, let's say in hindsight was a big mistake mm. um, because either you're fully committed or you're not. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in the initial ideation stage, you can obviously let's say do it along your job, but once you're committed to it, uh, you should go and lay like at, at the very end for the last half a year, I did this full time as well, because I was still hoping that I could turn like things around 
and, okay. and make the company grow enough, which obviously didn't materialize in the end. But yeah, so we were doing it part-time and then we had um, some full-time uh, full-time interns and okay. um, hired also some freelancers that were also working on it full-time. Yeah. And we, the way we like, so basically we used our salaries that we we're earning on our jobs to, let's say, pay the salaries of the other people. Okay. Yeah. So you kind of self-funded your startup. Exactly. Okay. Which to be fair, I think for a platform business is not necessarily, especially such a consumer driven platform is not really a good way to go no. because it slows you down and you have to, especially if you have to build such a big network, you have to really move fast and being limited by those financial resources as well as by simply, um, yeah, not, ha not having enough commitment and enough manpower on board, uh, just was was a cardinal mistake so to speak that afterwards also made it impossible to even once we reached let's say a particular state with the app and with the user base made it impossible to get funding because investors were like yeah but you guys are way too slow no but but at the starting point were you considering external funding or was it simply something i didn't i didn't even know it existed <laughs> yeah. to be fair okay <laughs> okay so that didn't come up in your first Google search on how no. to do a startup <laughs> that you could ask people for external funding. Okay. Exactly, that's that's yeah. bad luck, I would say. <laughs> Good. Now, now, as you indicated, so the, so traction remains rather limited. Uh, I saw, for instance, uh, on the on the LinkedIn page, there were twenty six followers, which is not uh, the biggest traction. Um, have we you... did, we didn't push LinkedIn, but yeah, essentially okay. we, we just put it on LinkedIn to be able to put a proper logo on, on like <laughs> in our profiles. Like we, we mostly shared it via social media, uh, via like Instagram slash back at the time, actually Facebook. No. Um, but yeah, we have, we had a couple of uh, thousand followers and like, okay. it wasn't much. Yeah. But, but so what kind of stuff did you try to kind of push traction forward? Mm -hmm. So there are, actually a number of initiatives like first of all um, my co-founder decided to pursue a master's degree in in the u.s uh, at halt uh, international business school precisely for the reason that that was let's say one of the most diverse in international schools and he just wanted to let's say push the app through his exposure to all these different students that would then go back to their home country and hopefully spread it so mm. that that was one way, uh, and then obviously connected to that, going to fairs, um, let's say creating stickers, bombarding the entire school with stickers, and so <laughs> on and so forth. Um, so a bit of guerrilla marketing. Yeah. And then what we realized is that coming back to this point of that we wanted to have actual content on the platform to make it more enticing to people to also browse to let's say stay longer on the platform to be inspired uh we then wanted to cooperate with travel bloggers uh mm -hmm. under the premise that we would basically help them to tailor their content to particular personality types so we would basically give them let's say a um an under a deeper understanding of their readers and thus help them to make their recommendations way more attuned and way more personalized to, to the reader base and in exchange for basically adding free content and that we would then use their blog, so to speak, to get further people on board. 
Um, so, so those were those were the main ideas that we that we pursued. Um, yeah. or in addition to the obvious word of mouth that we that I described initially, um, and what we also try to be fair, and, and I spent quite a bit of time on that, is um, creates because back at the time I, I came across a like say intermarketing internet marketing guru. And he was all talking about copywriting and like creating, let's say, self-liquidating offers and so on and so forth. And so I set up a, um, yeah, an online funnel, a marketing funnel uh, with an online video and then basically to pitch the idea to people and to to convince them to give us, I think back at the time it was 10 bucks or so for like the premium membership one time. Mm-hmm. Kind of like do a, do a, um, a crowdfunding but through online marketing yeah. uh, to get people on board but yeah that that didn't really turn out because like <laughs> uh, acquisition costs were way higher than what we would get in so we rapidly turned that off again but yeah, it was was an interesting experience i think it taught me a lot about as well about the inter- entire copywriting and like intermarketing yeah. Because was there a clear monetization strategy from the beginning? Like, how did you in the end want to make money with it, or was that not re- not really? That there was also like a part we were first wanted to focus on on solving the problem, and then we realized, hey, in order to fuel the growth, we would actually need to make money with this. And so the obvious choice was, hey, let's let's do a subscription model, let's do like no. uh, <laughs> a freemium model, so to speak. But that was rather coming on top. We would then let's say have as exclusives uh, invite to particular organized events and so on and so forth. But in the end, we never really, let's say, even came to the point where we created that uh, premium offering because we realized there is not enough demand uh, to actually, let's say, get people to pay for it. Because what we, like coming back to what we talked about originally, it was really about the that people said it was a cool idea like it was this typical vitamin that everyone said yeah it's it's cool like i would mm. want to use it but it wasn't a true pain point because people no. could still go travel they could still make good experiences and so on and so forth so it wasn't in the end in hindsight strong enough of a pain point to really also prompt users especially a target group that's has let's say that is restricted in their budget because they're studying mostly no uh to then pay for a service that they can maybe use yeah four times a year maybe yeah no clear now as you mentioned so you tried several things to kind of increase the traction on your platform um it did not really work out how did that influence kind of the relationship between the three of you did it excellent question um because i think in hindsight what would really let's say broke the startup was ultimately the co-founder conflict okay um but to to give a bit of background on that so essentially after a year of working full-time we were kind of like at this point where we said okay someone has to focus on this full-time otherwise it's not going to succeed because we're not making um fast enough progress no and so being in that position i said okay i'm going to quit my job Mm. I'm going to go to Berlin. I'm going to focus on this full time. Okay. And so I'm going to dedicate my entire work power or manpower into this. And the other two co-founders stayed in their jobs for now, but had the commitment that they would, let's say, chip in the money. Okay. 
to cover the costs of the insurance and so on and so forth. So that was, that was the background. What then happened is, I think two, three months down the line, one of the co-founders um, decided to get married, which is beautiful, right? As a friend, I was super proud. Yeah. But then as a co-founding partner, he suddenly told me, hey, right now I have different commitments. Yeah. I need the money for something else yeah. because I'm building a relationship, which yeah. again, from a friendship perspective, 100% agree. And I was, I was super happy for him. From a co-founder perspective, I felt very betrayed. Mm. And so also then let's say, first of all, being in this position, having the two hats and then let's say communicating, you can imagine it can be very rough if you approach a person with a one hat uh, right now, I'm speaking to you as a co-founder, Yeah, basically trying to explain in a nice way that you feel betrayed. And then the person of a, taking it as from a friendship perspective. Yeah. And so that created a lot of conflict mm. that ultimately we face a situation where we say, okay, the business not really going anywhere. We're right now about to ruin our friendship. We know we knew each other from the like from kindergarten. So okay. like at, back at the time it was like over 20 years. And so that was really the point where we had to decide, okay, either it's the business or it's the friendship. And given that the friendship was not really, uh, given that the business was not really going anywhere, uh, we said, okay, let's let's stop here. It was a great experience. We learned a ton in the process. Yeah. But uh, in the setup right now, it doesn't really make sense anymore. Yeah. And doing it alone by myself without funding, without anything, also didn't really, let's say, look promising enough. Especially then I reached out to a couple of investors and they told us, hey, you guys are being, just, you, you were too slow. You don't have enough traction and so on and so forth, which was really the point where I said, okay, I understand like this, this is where it's supposed to stop. Yeah. Uh, which which was a really tough situation to be in because I just like quit my job six months earlier. Yeah. Um, but I think these situations also make you grow a ton because mm. it gave me then a lot of time to reflect upon the entire journey, mm. understand the tens and hundreds of mistakes I made yeah. when it comes to both being a leader, when it comes to understanding pain points as i mentioned when it comes to funding and and so much more product and and marketing and so on and so i'm still very grateful for the journey and i would in hindsight still like do the same i mean i would do a ton of things differently but i think the the actual first step of going out there pursuing a passion and trying to 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 solve a pain point for people i think that's that's a beautiful thing and ultimately also prompted me to right now start over again right with yeah. with all the learnings in hindsight or in mind because if you would go back and you would like have the option like say okay maybe i should i don't know join first an incubator program or follow a startup workshop or boot camp mm -hmm. whatever uh, instead of uh, immediately kicking off would you simply do the same again or would you think uh, actually it makes sense to first kind of get some basic knowledge from somebody else or do you think that that simply cannot kind of substitute the real life experience that you need to have i think what helps a ton or what would have helped a ton would have been you might call an angel investor you might call a mentor no. someone experienced who's been there no because i think i mean there's there's two ways right like either you you pick up some stuff in in school 
as I think a lot of gra- uh, undergraduates and graduates do at WHU, mm. or at, at the university that I was at, there like no one even talked about startups. Like there was mm. absolutely nothing to to build on and no one to reach out to. Yeah. And I think this is also what caused, let's say, a lot of the early mistakes that were totally avoidable. Uh, but then ultimately, I think there's, let's say, the, the blueprint of the things you need to do. And then there's execute. And there's so many, let's say, challenges and that you have to overcome that ultimately every founder journey then looks very differently. And I think these learnings on how to handle that, and especially also, let's say, the, the personal development that comes with it, mm. the resiliency you need, the motivation, the, the self-awareness, uh, the, the tolerance for in- uncertainty, um, and this, this risk-loving mentality, all these things I think you, you really also develop in the process. I think internships can help, work experiences can help, uh, university can help, but I think ultimately you really know or you really learn it in the process. Yeah. I, I'm quite intrigued that you say um, it would be great to have somebody like an angel investor or a mentor, which seems very reasonable, but in the end you didn't do it. So why during this trajectory did you not consider, oh, why should I not try to approach some people that can maybe help me, giving me advice? Again, was this just because mm. you simply didn't realize that other people were doing this? Or, or was there another reason to not do it? Maybe you were afraid that that would kind of, that you would give away secrets or something like that? Mm. So I think it, it really took a while to understand that we're moving slow. Mm. Because if if you haven't heard about how fast, like, if you never heard about any startups being developed in the first place, if you have no idea that you could go from zero to 10,000 or 100,000 users within, I don't know, six months partially, yeah. we're t- <laughs> yeah. then you're like, okay, uh, we're going at a speed and just, just like a very subjective assessment of is it, is it going good or is it not going good? Yeah. Uh, I think that that was the first part. And then the second part is that at some point, I really realized that when when I when I quit my job and I was like, okay, this, things have to go somewhere. Uh, this is when I realized, hey, in-person contact is super important. Like the way I tried to bridge it before is, for instance, by uh, purchasing online courses from accomplished entrepreneurs, because I thought, hey, at least these guys have been there. Mm. Uh, they can they can let's say give me hints and tips on how to overcome lots of these uh, barriers, which. Partially it did. It definitely helped me to understand way more uh, how to build a startup. But then again, when it comes to specific questions, these they, they can't answer you because there's like no Q&A. There's no one who, whom you can really tell the particular situation you are in no. and can reach out to. And I had one mentor that's just for my, my private life uh, who owned a company in Stuttgart, a big IT company. And uh, he just, let's say, gives advice on, on the technical side and not so much, let's say, on, on the founding side. So there's been people, but I think overall, yeah, more passive people. And I think a more active involvement, and this is why I mentioned angel investors, is that because often they tend to be that way, uh, is, would have been way more helpful. No, okay. Maybe to briefly reflect a bit about what was the the impact of deciding to stop the startup on, on you personally. Yeah. So I, I try to imagine you some years ago, 
sitting in Berlin in an apartment, having quit a job six months earlier, and now having made this decision, okay, we, we need to stop this. I was like, at first I was like devastated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, also a bit relieved to be fair, because okay. it's always also like a lot of pressure off the shoulders. Because if you then have suddenly, I mean, we had interns and we had like some some developers outsourced that were working on a full time. And I mean, I had to communicate to these people. Some of them were doing the end of graduation project. Um, and I basically had to tell them, hey, guys, like this is not going forward. I'm sorry, but like mm. you have to finish your end of graduation project somewhere else, yeah. which also had like obviously negative impact on them. But yeah. uh, so it, it was not only, let's say, for myself but also hard from, from a leader perspective in that, in that small context. Mm. Um, and so I, I really tried, like started questioning whether a, you can ever succeed in a startup no. and then reflecting back on, let's say the, 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 the corporate perspective that I also had where this transformation and innovation project were, we basically wanted to completely revamp an entire business model to make it fit for a different customer group also didn't succeed. Mm. Um, because was that was after you had finished my bachelor's homemade. exactly. Okay. Yeah. So no, then I, you went into a corporate again, then it was more a kind of entrepreneurship process within a corporate, but also that was not successful. No, that was, that was actually imperative. So I finished my bachelor's mm. and then directly joined the corporate. Okay. And, during the bachelor's, I'd already started my the uh, the project, the economy, yeah, and that went all along. Also, while I was okay. working full time and beyond, because at some point I quit that job and then was okay. moving on. And so, having had these two perspectives and both not really working out, I was really let's say questioning whether it's possible at all or whether it's not just simply better to to stick with the status quo. No, but then at the same time, I was like, there's there, there are people out there, let's say the, the one out of 10 yeah. that for some reason have a perfect understanding of how it works and a replicable, a replicable process, right? Mm. And not only found the one venture successfully, but two, three, four, they do one thing, sell it, go to the next market, build again a successful thing. And I was like, that's fascinating. How did they do it? And so... Mm while still let's say digesting this um failure in a way i was becoming more and more obsessed with trying to understand how to do it properly no and that really was what what sparked a huge curiosity in me which ultimately then led me to uh support as an advisor the mapify founding team who had started at the same time uh, and learned a ton in the process and then later also joined WHU for the for the master program to also get exposure to even more um, highly successful founders mm. and um, then joining Flink as well down the line to really work together uh, with the founders, with zero founders, interviewing a ton of highly successful founders in my uh, for my veteran, for my master thesis and so on and so forth. So, so ever since I'm really, let's say, in on, on dissecting how that works okay. because it kind of created an obsession about answering <laughs> that question what's the and, secret and what, sauce what is, what is the magical ingredient did, did you come <laughs> to an answer what 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 does make an, an uh, entrepreneur successful 
I mean, I think there's there's various components to it, right? But like, at least speaking from from what I found out in my thesis is that it really has to do with with a process which our literature sometimes is referred to deliberate practice, which you see in a lot of sports stars, right? If if you picture the Michael Jordan or the Messi, they all dissect the skill set that they need into small let's say chunks mm. that are digestible and together with really high performing coaches then say okay you have to perfect this particular skill in that in that manner then set goals for this train get feedback and they hone that particular skill till it's perfect and then move on to the next one and this is how they let's say create extreme excellence mm. on the hard skill level but then at the same time, and I think this is the, the often overlooked component, I think it has to do way more also with soft skills and with especially personal competences and on the second basis, also social competences. Mm. Because what all of the founders told me that I spoke to, and then these were like people like Marco Vitor, uh, founder of Odibene, or um, Patrick Andre, the founder of Home2Go and so on and so forth. So really people that built huge companies they all said it basically comes down to primarily having an understanding of yourself. Because if you understand yourself, you know exactly, um, A, what you want to achieve. And you can also reflect way more on, are you on the right way? How do I have to adjust? And this then comes again with self-motivation because if you know exactly what you want to achieve, then you're way more self-motivated that translates also into resilience and that's let's say the foundation for really going anywhere no and these founder and and right now a lot of people might say okay like this is something you can't train like either you're born self-aware or not but i would disagree mm. because putting yourself out there same with with uh developing this let's say ability to handle risks if you put yourself out there and put yourself into risky environments i mean there's this concept uh which might be referred to as reality loop where your experience your let's say physical reaction and that creates another experiences and so on and so forth and so you can create particular um you, where you can force your experience or the way you experience certain situations and create conclusions out of this, which then is the important part, creates belief patterns that influence, again, your perception of events. And so you can tweak that process for sure. Like you can, let's say, hack your mind. And again, it needs self-awareness, but putting yourself out in these situations into high-pressure environments, into environments where you can... We get people to give you external feedback. We have mentors that say, hey, this is the way I would do it. This is, these are the skills you would need. Also from a personal competence perspective, Le later also down the line for leadership, also hugely important if you want to build a big company. And then you can slowly start building that. But I think like aside from the hard skills, I think it's really about, let's say, starting at the foundation and understanding really yourself. Okay. Because in 2021, you, you started a new company called Hatch, which is yes. kind of an, uh, uh, I would say, consulting company that helps other companies with, with digital solutions. Um, 
can you explain me a bit how you have kind of used the learnings from your prior failures, let's say like that, in, in the kind of setup of this, this new company? What Absolutely. have you done different based mm-hmm. on the learnings from the past? I mean, to, to, to start it with the, with the biggest learning, probably like the co-founder. Um, okay. I know right now, like the, the partner I founded, Julie, uh, I founded Hatch with, um, we know each other right now since eight years, but we sat down, like we, we met in, in an offsite meeting for two days and really complete, completely transparently laid out what we want to do what is our what are our personal goals how do we see a business evolving and so on like and we knew how the other person works which i think is also hugely important up front and then we laid out a clear uh, co-founder agreement uh, mm. which basically details let's say the the ways of working and also the consequences of failing to to adhere to these in order to prevent the situation ahead early on with my co-founder i think that's that's an important one and then and I think that's the major realization that I had personally for myself. I think there's different ways to build businesses. Um, there's, let's say, the the classical way you alluded to that a lot of business students think about is like raising VC money and so on and so forth. No. But given that we were a bit scarred, so to speak, from not having enough resources, mm. um, but at the same time still being willing to yeah, determine our own trajectory. We said, okay, let's build a business that is cash flow positive from day one. Um, and so we focused firstly on on creating services that companies would pay for. No. So that we could then, let's say, with those resources grow without having to worry about how do we feed ourselves? Because I think that's an important part, right? Yeah. Uh, if if you're in a situation where you even have to worry about how do I gonna how am I going to pay rent next year or next month, no. um, then I think it doesn't put you in the right mindset to uh, go out there and focus fully on your company. And so so what we did is ultimately and and coming back to the learnings because what we realized also coming back again to the corporate context uh, and where I had experience and where we realized, hey, a lot of companies really struggle with this just as I did back then. Mm. Um, they want to create innovative solutions, but they either don't have the knowledge on how to do that. Um, they don't, Or they don't even know which kind of market opportunity exists. Or they simply don't have the current resources in terms of, for instance, developer power, or they really follow old, old style um, approaches. And so we said, hey, we're we going to create like such a product and venture studio that helps companies identify the right opportunities, but then also helps them to, to rapidly translate them into an MVP, but also, let's say, later on, a full-scale product. Mm. Um, and if they want, also have us being the persons through our network who bring the right co-founders on board. So basically doing like the classical venture building approach that also other companies do, such as Bridgemaker and so on and so forth. But really iterating much more closely also to the corporates, like, and this is also something we we also, we're still learning is really just picking up the phone because either either you get, either you learn or you make a sale. Mm um and i think just just staying way more to the customer and 
avoiding like all this other things that Google suggests you basically you have to be on LinkedIn, on uh, Instagram, TikTok and whatever channel at the same time. Yeah. You have to write blog posts. You have to go to conferences and so on and so forth. Doing lots of these things and really just say focusing on, on the essentials, which is creating business for, for the company, doing sales, and then all the rest, so to speak, come, falls into place at okay. some point. Yeah. No, but it's interesting that you emphasize this thing about having a kind of clear contract with your co-founder as your co-learning, because I, I think, or at least what I see in our network is that still a lot of young, enthusiastic founders tend not to have that kind of contracts in place. No. Uh, it seems to be very difficult to do it. Um, it's a bit like uh, if you... Uh, fall in love with uh, your uh, girlfriend or boyfriend it seems to be difficult to immediately write a contract to kind of predict what you will do if if it goes wrong right and i think it's the same with a startup not initially you're enthusiastic and then you might actually not be very tempted to write down all the potential scenarios that can go wrong but as you True. seem to claim you think it's quite important to do so i do think so yeah because it gives you like I think it also has to do with the fact of like anticipate risks. Hmm. Um, I mean, you you can go overboard, right? And like completely get caught up in all these and and analyzing so much that you're end up in complete paralysis state, right? But I think let's say crucial risks that can make or break the company, uh, they should 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 be addressed. And also, let's say based on my internship experience with cherry ventures for instance where they also said hey like our founders should have a a, a founders contract because it mm. just creates a binding agreement just as a purchasing contract does yeah. where of course you can also just do like create a prototype for a company and say yeah once we're done you're gonna pay us but you also tend to have a contract where it clearly says hey this is the, those are the boundary conditions so to speak that you can fall back onto um, so I think it just get, it just helps. And also for, for you personally to think through what are, let's say, the worst case scenarios that you can also prepare for and that you clearly know this is behavior that I want to see and this is behavior I don't want to see. Um, I, I think it just gives a very good way of working together, just as you would have an employee contract later on, right? Where it also just states, state, uh, states the basics. Um, but yeah, again, and then I think on, on monetization, I think there was a huge learning for us that I described earlier and simply really also understanding what, what pain, what is a pain point and what's, what's a, no. what's a vitamin. Um, no. I think those, those are really crucial elements that might be overlooked when you say, yeah, I kind of know the market. <laughs> I know myself should be okay. And I mean, obviously, even even if once even as you keep iterating, you keep let's say refining the pain point, um, and you might actually go more niche at first, to then go broader. Also, what we messed up, let's say the first time around, mm. we went too big too soon, or too mm. vast. And and if you go too vast, then you create a solution, but that solution is not really helpful for anyone. Rather, focus on a very particular like narrow target group perfected for that and then once they are like users that love your product then you can see okay how can i expand it gradually yeah. excellent killian 
thanks for actually being willing to share a failure story that, that you have experienced. It, it's not always that straightforward to openly talk about that. So I really appreciate it. Now, before we end, uh, we always have some questions at the end uh, about what kind of books and playlists you want to recommend. Mm -hmm. But I also want to give you the opportunity to actually pitch your own podcast. Can you tell a bit more about the podcast that you have yourself? Yes, gladly. So the Digital Transformer podcast is going to launch next week on the 12th of the 1st. And uh, we, we invite both top-notch entrepreneurs as well as uh, corporate executives who have built vastly successful company uh, led huge transformations and really interview them to find out how they did it um mm. and focusing both on let's say the the hard skills as well as the the men like the the mindset behind it and um yeah some some of the guests that have joined us so far uh are the ex-ceo of Adidas Italy uh, Marco Viter uh then and other unicorn founders and there are many more to come and so yeah if you if you're curious about finding out again coming back to to my experience and my obsession how to build extremely successful digital businesses then this podcast is for you so yeah you might find the link in the in the description below uh, it's digital transformer podcast or you just google it on on your preferred audio device platform Great. Now, I mean, we'll definitely add uh, a link to it in the show notes so that people that are interested in it can access, uh, can access uh, also your podcast. Any other suggestions in terms of other books, other podcasts that people should listen to? A podcast that I really like as well is uh, The Mike Dillard Show, which is from a US entrepreneur who's bootstrapped several businesses and turned them into yeah, multi-million dollar revenue businesses. And I think his podcast has been listened over 1 million times, uh, downloaded over 1 million times. It's, it's a real gem. Uh, I've, I've taken a lot out of, out of it. And um, books, I think there, there are several that are great. Um, what I personally, depending on the topic, right? But I think it must have that I would have loved to read in the very <laughs> early beginning uh is the lean startup i think it would have yeah. taught me a lot about how to do things and how not to do things yeah. um but then also when it comes to to networking um a hugely influential book for me was never eat alone from keith ferrazzi okay a book that really let's say details out how to network how to get in touch with people um and to do it the the right way and and the same author also has several other books his reason one has been very helpful also when it comes to leadership um and yeah no no that's uh sounds like very interesting books and of course the lean startup approach is also a book that we heavily use at wau to teach our students how to do it so great that you also like it <laughs> Killian, again, thanks a lot for uh, being willing to share some of your failure stories. And I hope that also our audience enjoyed uh, this. And we hope that we can welcome our audience again next time for a new episode of the Most Awesome Fun Podcast. Thanks for listening. Bye. All right. Thank you for having me.